Thank you for tuning in to Avant Life's weekly podcast. We hope this message inspires you, stirs your faith, and leaves you blessed. This is our Culture Sunday. We do this at the start of every year. We take the first Sunday to discuss culture and what is our culture as a church. Um, and we have a really, I think, really strong and really well-communicated culture statement here at Avant Life Church. Uh, so I'm excited. Hey, before we get into it, I just want to encourage you, you know, this year um, is not going to fix last year. So all the things that we felt, all the things that we went through, all the, the pains, hurts, let down, the isolation, maybe it was, you know, the mental health and the stresses that come with being alone or not being able to do what we normally did for such a long period of time. 2021 is not designed to fix that year. And in many ways, I don't believe that God wants us to fix some of the things that took place last year. I think as a church, there's many things that we did and many things that we were confronted with that I believe God wants us to really take 2021, not just to forget about 2020, but to begin to, to put into place some of the things, some of the powerful things that he taught us. And one of those, and I know this is true for each and every one of us, is how important community is. Um, it's funny, it's that, that, you know, that age-old saying, you don't know what you got till it's gone, um, or you don't know if it's real until it's gone, right? You know, and I think for a lot of us, we associated community with simply turning up to something. Um, but community is not simply turning up. That's not what community is. Community is investing into something, into someone, into a vision, into a belief, into a hope, into the, the, the understanding that God is using us collectively, unified in our differences, in our skills, in our talents, in our letdown, in our humanity to bring hope into this city, to this province and across this nation. I know right now that each and every one of us has a particular desires for 2021, but I hope from the depths of all that God has given us that your desire would be to see his kingdom come and his will be done in your life and in the lives of those around you and in our city. I want us to be a church that doesn't look at this year as a year of recouping. We don't have to recoup. Like we didn't lose anything last year that we didn't need to keep. Like that's how our God works. He pruned us, he stretched us, he increased us in areas, and he decreased us in areas. But one thing I know for sure is that we have not been robbed of the community that we have with God, and we have not been robbed of the community that we have as the bride. And if anything, we should begin to stand up and take a little bit more intentional steps as a church to go, you know, we're not done yet, God's not finished yet. We say these things, but we need to believe them, we need to live them out. So 2021, I can't wait. I can't wait to see what God does in this year. You know, we started last year with no understanding that a virus uh, was going to shut down our, our, our world. And no matter where you stand on the, you know, the science around it or, you know, if you think we should wear masks or not, or if you think it's a bunch of crock or whatever, at the end of the day, it's still affecting us. The decisions are still being made through that lens. And we still have a responsibility to respond as a church, as Christians, as believers. And I want us to be known as those who responded not out of, you know, frustration. We didn't respond out of annoyance. We didn't respond out of feeling dejected, rejected, or lost, hurt, or, or assaulted. In any of those terms, we responded out of faith in authority that's been given to us. And I think it's 2021, Avant Life Church, this is going to be the year we get judged upon, not last year. Do you know what I mean? Like, often we think, oh, I wonder what we're going to, the world's going to say about us from 2020, the year of the pandemic. No, I think what we're going to be judged upon is what we look like after the pandemic. Have we come out beautiful? Or have we come out ugly? <laughs> Don't answer that question. No, you can. On the chat, answer it. Whatever you want to do. I'm not here to manage that. 
So we start every year, like I said, with a Culture Sunday. We reiterate it. You know, if you've been with us for the last few years, you know this. You know what it is. Um, I'm not asking you to tune out. I'm asking you to tune in and go, okay, I need to be reminded of some of these things. But that's inclusive of me going through this this week. I'm like, yeah, there's some of these things I need to reevaluate and work at, get better at. Um, and so our, our culture statement as a church is to remain helpful, remain humble, remain hopeful, remain his. And each and every year, we sort of take one of these things to really highlight. Now, we're going to go through all four this, uh, today, but at the end of it, we're going to really focus in on one of them, and it's remain humble. Um, and I'm excited when we get to that point. But let's just revisit what culture is. Culture is how we do things, how we do things around here. Um, and I do believe that every, every believer, every person that follows Jesus, you have been commissioned to set culture. Not adhere to culture, to set culture. That doesn't mean you're belligerent and disrespectful towards other cultures. What it does mean as an ambassador, you reflect and you project and you speak from the culture that Christ has given us. Culture is so important to us. You know, we are defined by how we do things, not what we say, how we do things. You can say whatever you want, but what you do is what people look at, is what people judge. And so our culture is important. We treat culture as a vehicle. So if vision, and next Sunday is our vision Sunday, is our destination that we believe God has given us, then our culture is our vehicle to get there. Now, you've heard this before, but I'm going to repeat it because repeating it's going to get it deeper within your heart and your mind. But if our destination was Langley, then our culture has to be but a mere vehicle like a car. And that's simple. But if our culture or our destination was, let's say, you know, the island, then our, our culture would have to be something like a ferry, right? It needs to shift and change to the different destination. But if our destination, God willing, and everyone's going to say amen, is Hawaii, then our culture needs to be like an Air Force One. Like If the president gets Air Force One, then what does co-heirs to the kingdom of Christ get? What's our culture like? What is, what is God dreaming up in your heart as a vision? And, and I hope you have a vision for your life this year. I hope that you've sat down in your family, if you're with your wife, your husband, if you're, if you're single, you sat down with the Holy Spirit because you're dating Jesus, right? And you've sat down and you've written what your vision is for this year, what your destination is for this year. It's important that you understand, and we've spoken about this so many times, that if you are not intentional with how you begin to allow yourself partnering with the Holy Spirit to guide your steps, then you are going to be blown this way and next. You're going to be pushed and pulled and you're going to be like a tumbleweed stuck in a storm. And then you're going to wonder at the end of the year, did I achieve anything at all or have I gone backwards sideways? And you're just going to ask God the same questions you could be possibly asking him every year. So this year, if this is you, if you've never done it before, take the initiative. Let this Sunday be the Sunday that encourages you. What is the vision destination for your life? And then once you have that, can I, can I tell you, this culture right now is going to get you there. It's going to empower you. Because I don't want to be somebody that writes something that is, is not... Uh, it, it's not measurable, it's not, it's not something that can grow, it's not, it's not scalable to what God wants to do in your life. I love this culture statement because it can scale to any vision God gives you. I mean any vision. Try it and see. So we have four anchor points and we've spoken about it. Remain helpful, humble, hopeful. His, yes, they all start with H, so if we need to increase it, it has to be a H word. 
But the reason we do that is so that you remember it. So you remember when you're faced with situations, you can go, hey, I need to remain helpful in this. That's our first point, actually, remain helpful. I know that this is something we all inspire to be like, a helpful person. If you would ask Emma, she would say, you know what? If you say, what is the best component of your husband? She'd be like, he's a helpful person, right? (laughs) Helpful in his own ways, helpful in ways that might frustrate you, but helpful nonetheless. Are you a helpful person? I mean, don't you love helpful people? When you go to the shops, right? Put your hand up. Maybe put your, your chat up if you're, uh, <laughs> if you're short. <laughs> Vertically challenged, right? And you go to the shops and there's something on the top shelf. Don't you love, before you have to say anything, that helpful individual who comes up to you and says, can I give you a hand? Right? And you just, it's funny because all they're doing is reaching maybe a foot taller than you and getting something, but you leave that moment thinking that guy or that girl is a superhero, right? And all they did is get the can of beans that you couldn't reach. Helpfulness is a superpower. If you can be helpful, you're a superhero. That's how it works. We love, people love, the Bible loves, God's culture loves helpful people. That's why we say you should remain helpful in every situation. Remain helpful. Have you thought how many times you've been unhelpful? Now, if I was to do a list of my life or even my conversations with Emma, that list would be mighty long. (laughs) Mighty long unhelpfulness. Helpfulness doesn't come naturally as human beings as much as we wish it would. Like we do, each and every one of these culture statement points is actually something that I don't believe comes supernaturally for us. Some people are, you know, endowed with a greater level of helpfulness. They're they're better people than us. But it doesn't mean we can't try to reach for the stars and join them. Helpfulness speaks to trust and respect. It really does. If you're a helpful person, you're trying to allow the culture of trust and respect to be paramount in your life. It's one of those commodities, trust, that is hard to come by these days. Actually, rarely do you see any form of our contemporary culture celebrate trust as it should. You know, we watch these movies where uh, we celebrate deviance and we celebrate debauchery and we celebrate sort of malicious and uh, unfaithful behavior and then every once in a while someone will do something trusting and we all cry (laughs) we're like oh it's such a beautiful moment we're crying at something that should be the normality we're being moved by something that should be the normality why don't we do that each and every day because we celebrate and we normalize all these toxic behaviors and then when a godly behavior turns up we're moved by it. Why? Because we're moved by the things of God. And that's why God has commissioned his church to be those consistent moments in movies in people's lives. We're the ones that bring the trust. We're the ones that are faithful. We're the ones that are respectful. We don't have to affirm everything, but we can respect and be respectful. This is what helpfulness looks like in your life as you go through. And I know we've all been there. We go through times like that colleague at work. Now, some of those colleagues at work, like I don't have that issue. I've got phenomenal staff that work with me. But I know some of you have to work with people that test your patience. Now, most of you know that if you're a loud eater, you can't be around me. 
Like, there's nothing worse, and I'm not going to name names, Luke Gartenbach. Um, for some reason, God uses him to test me. Because when I'm trying to make a big decision or having a thought that I need to process, somehow Luke Gartenbein has found almonds that are roasted and smoked and salted, and he's figured out how to make something that's crunchy enough sound like the Titanic hitting an iceberg. That's what it sounds like in my head. And I'm like, he's breaking the culture statement. How is this helpful? (laughs) Yes, Emma eats loud as well. I thought that's what you wanted me to say. (laughs) We have those colleagues that at work, for whatever reason, frustrate us. Maybe they're obnoxious or too boisterous, or maybe they share their opinions too much, or maybe they devalue you in the way they speak to you. They're patronized or they're condescending, or maybe they are behind your back saying things about you that are not true so that they can better their chances of a promotion. And you think to yourself, what is my response to that situation and so often this world and our own nature would say we should fight fire with fire, that we should stoop to that level of toxicity and hopefully we will find the outcome that is beneficial to us. But the Bible tells us that people who trade in those commodities are only trading in death and that as believers we get to trade in life but we have to do something that is abnormal and that is we need to remain helpful which means to those people, we must remain trustworthy. We must remain respectful and dignified. We must respond in grace and in love. Now, that doesn't mean you become a doormat by no stretch of the imagination. It just means you pick up a more godly weapon. It means you use something that has an an eternal perspective to it. I love the story of Joseph in the Bible, and we go through this each and every time. And I'm not going to read the whole story, but I'm going to give you dot points. We go from having this young man at the age of around 17 have these dreams. Now, these dreams, are, you know, they, they are embedded on his mind and his heart. These dreams become a promise to him. Now, how he goes about sharing his dreams, depending on how you want to read it, still in either, either way of looking at it, comes across, you know, quite proudful and quite cocky and quite arrogant. He's like, you're going to do all these, you're going to bow down to me. I'm going to be the leader. Now, he might have been saying that out out of excitement, out of youthful ignorance. He's not realizing the the depths of his words. But nonetheless, it puts into motion a set of consequences and moments that begin him on a journey that allows him to fulfill the promises that God has given him. Now, what I find interesting is that his promise that God had given him was that he was going to rule one day in some capacity and that his own family would come to him and acknowledge the authority on his life. That's the promise God. He's excited about it. He goes and sees his brothers in his Technicolor shirt, you know, like he's, he's all Bohemian Rhapsody, that bad boy up. And he's walking up there and he's like, boom, look at me. They see him from a distance. We know the story well, right? And they conspire to kill him. And it's only because of a brother that, that you know, one of them that says, like, you know, maybe we shouldn't kill him because he's our flesh and he's our blood. Let's do something else. But they sell him into slavery. And the Bible tells us that from there, from being rejected and expelled from his own family by the hands of those who should have protected him, his elder brothers, he's sold into slavery, who then gets sold to a guy called Potiphar. Turn to somebody next to you, maybe on the chat, and write Potiphar now. See if you can spell it. Pot. 
Oh. <laughs> Prayer request coming up. He had sold to Potiphar. And, I, you know, it's interesting because he, he actually does a really good job. Like, how many of you, if your family just, like, beat you up to the point of death and then sold you to some sort of bikey gang? You know, and then they sold you to some sort of traitor. How many of you would remain super helpful, faithful in that season? Straight after God giving you a dream of authority. And then the Bible says that he remains helpful even though he has to deal with the rejection and, 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 and what we would consider one of the greatest betrayals of a family. He's dealing with that, but he still succeeds in blessing his slave master's house even though he's not a legitimate slave. And then in that, Potiphar's wife thinks he's a bit of like, so, you know, look at that. Two feet and a heartbeat and she's on him. And he could have slept with his, uh, with his master's wife. He could have fallen into that temptation. Now, this guy is extremely rich. I'm talking about Potiphar. And the chances are is that his wife wasn't too sore on the eyes either. You know, and she makes moves on Joseph when Potiphar's not around. And it's his helpfulness to the call and the promise on his life that inspires him. Why? Because he knows he needs to honor the things of God. And he flees. And in the fleeing process, is accused of attempting to rape her. So now he goes from being a favored son to betrayed, to slave, to accused rapist, and he's put into prison. And in prison... Once again, he remains helpful to the situation. The Bible tells us that at the end of the day, he's favored. He's given favor amongst the guards. He interprets dreams, and he tells those that he's interpreting the dreams, remember me when you have the opportunity to try to get me out of here. They forget about him, so now he becomes forgotten. All of these things, finally, years later, at the age of 30, he is reminded, or the, the, one of the, the ex-prisoners uh, is reminded of Joseph, and they bring him to Pharaoh, and, he, and the story goes that he interprets Pharaoh's dreams. Pharaoh is impressed, and this is what Pharaoh says to Joseph. He says, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people, I said, to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. This is Pharaoh talking to a favored son that was enslaved, accused of rape, imprisoned falsely, forgotten about. And for 13 years, he goes on this journey, remaining helpful and faithful. And in but a moment, he goes from all of that into a prime minister of one of the greatest empires on earth at that time. That's impressive. Now, the question I have for you is, are you, are you a helpful person? Because I look at Joseph and I see a helpful person. Not just helpful to others, but helpful to the own call of God in his life. God's given you promises. I know he has. He's given you vision. But you're not going to achieve them if you're an unhelpful person. You're not going to achieve them if you're an unfaithful, untrusting person. You need to begin to trade in the commodity of helpfulness. Helpfulness says a lot about who you are as an individual. Are you helping your family? Are you helping your kids? Are you helping your neighborhood? Are you helping your workplace, your study place? Are you helping wherever you go to shop? Are you helping your community? Are you helping the church? Are you helping what God has called on your life? Because the promise that God has given you is what will sustain you. So to remain helpful is to remember the promise. We see this in so many people's lives. It's Joshua and Caleb 
who remain helpful to the nation of Israel by remembering the promises of God over the persecution of Canaan. They don't see the giant, they see the promise. And even though there's 10 people bitterly rejecting the claims of of the promise, they still remain helpful and they stick it out. The Bible tells us they're the only two to inherit. Think about that. Their helpfulness saves them from a death in the wilderness. What will your helpfulness save you from? For King David, his helpfulness to serve his brothers, bring them cheese and bread. He's the sandwich guy. He, he's the Sanger guy in Australia. He brought the sandwiches to his brothers in helpfulness and he ends up on the battlefield against a giant, but it's the promise of being king that allows him to faithfully, in a trusting manner of God, remain helpful to the nation of Israel and slay a giant. All started with bringing cheese and bread and nobody. Best way you can remain helpful to yourself is to remain helpful to others. That's what you got to do. Those people that are plaguing you, persecuting you, remain helpful. See in time as helpfulness you know, bears a fruit far greater than malice, deceit, hatred, and bitterness. Our second one, and, and it's important that you remember this, is remain humble because if you're a helpful person, you're going to be a very successful person. That's how it works. But in our success, there is a propensity as, as, as human beings to think that we did it. We achieved it. But as believers, we know that all of our success, anything that is worth calling good, has come from God. And in that, we are to find our boast in Him alone. The Bible says a righteous man, righteous man finds his boast in the Lord. That includes women. And I want you to know this morning that as your helpfulness turns to successfulness, you've got to remain humble. The Bible says that God despises the arrogant. He has issues with the arrogant. But he's so enamored by those who are humble. He loves the humble heart. Biblical definition of humility and humbleness is being courteously respectful to others. I love that. Courteously respectful. How do you do? It is the opposite of aggressiveness, of arrogance, of boastfulness and of vanity. Of vanity. Don't we live in a vain world? Right? We live in a vain world. And we are, we are all culpable of partaking of that cup of vanity. Some of us more than others. You can write those names in the chat right now. I'm, I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> confess your sins amongst one another. No. <laughs> You know, humility says, rather than me first, it allows us to go, no, you first. That's what humility allows us to say. You first. Let's just go beyond halfway in meeting somebody. It's not about equal compromise. It means putting God and his people ahead of our own selfish interests. You can't have real godly humility and not serve the church. A simple equation. Because humility tells us to put the interest of God and his people before our own selfish interests. You can't have godly humility and not be serving his bride. Full stop. I'll meet you out back if you want to fight about it. 
comes with the knowledge that God's creation as a whole transcends our own narrow interests. It transcends. doesn't remove it. It just transcends it. Proverbs 22.4 says, Humility and the fear of the Lord bring wealth and honor and life. Humility and the fear of the Lord. It doesn't say power. It doesn't say authority. It doesn't say strength. It says humility and the fear of the Lord bring wealth and honor and life. Matthew 23.11 says, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbled himself shall be exalted. Hey, we've got a series coming up called The Upside Down Kingdom. We're going to talk about weird stuff like this. Really weird stuff where, where the principles of God, the parables and the teachings of Christ are so counterculture. They're so upside down to how we see the world tell us to operate. Humility is one of those key things. It's so unnatural to us. I want to read you this story that takes place in the Gospel of Matthew, verse 18, verse 1 to 5. It says this, At the time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like a child or like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. There's a lot about this that is self-explanatory. But there's a lot about this we need to take time and just pull apart. Let our hearts be exposed to the simplicity of Jesus' teaching that really grinds us in the opposite way than we want to be. I love that at the time the disciples came to Jesus, they're saying, who is the greatest of the kingdom of heaven? What a question. Who is the greatest? Yeah, humans, we have this ability to really want to know who's the best. We reward it, actually. Like, we celebrate it. Like, if you're on a football team at the end of the year, there's awards that go out, right? Most valuable player, boom. Best and fairest, come on. Most improved. Yeah, come on, some of us, participation award. <laughs> it's only millennials and younger that understand the participation award. All the other generations are like, what's that? <laughs> Who is the greatest? You know, the disciples were so often concerned with this question. It's not the only time they asked a question about greatness. They think that Jesus had already chosen that, that one of them was the greatest, that he'd already determined which one, and they wanted him to decide among them. He, they wanted them, you know, let's just ask Jesus to settle this. Could you imagine the conversations that are not recorded in the Bible amongst the disciples? Ever sit and read and be like, yeah, what would they been banging on about? When Jesus is up the front talking to one person, right, and they're just like, all right. I saw Andrew do this really weird thing the other day. I don't think he's the greatest. <laughs> There's no way. <laughs> Some things great people don't do, and Andrew did it. Just think about what they were talking about. And every once in a while, they mustered up the courage, and they would ask Jesus, who is the greatest? It's interesting, because Jesus spoke mostly from the position of his abasement. He spoke from a lowly position. 
yet they constantly thought of their own advancement. That's us, isn't it? That's how we operate. We celebrate and we acknowledge and we want to be more like Jesus and his humility, but we still ask the same question. When am I going to be the greatest? When am I going to be promoted to the point that everyone sees how wonderful and how special and how talented I am? When is this earthly affirmation going to arrive? And this is what the disciples are really asking. You know, who's going to be the best? Who's going to be the MVP of us 12? The concept of the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, it's interesting that they want to know who's going to hold the highest position of administration in God's kingdom. I love that thought that that the doubtless fancy temporal kingdoms, a place which they would be bestowed some sort of honor and glory. (laughs) So often we can be caught dreaming of the distribution of honors and who's going to fill what office as if the kingdom of God is a worldly monarchy. like it has the fragility of the kingdoms that we see here on earth. But humility allows us to avoid such traps of finding ourselves trying to take our place and position here when our position is already set for us in heaven. It's interesting that Jesus sets a child as the example of humility. We see here that Jesus called a little child to him and set the child amongst them. Do you know what? It's interesting that we read past that, but if you've dealt with children before, you would know that it's actually a pretty, a pretty like powerful thing that a child would respond to Jesus like that. Children are unpredictable, right? Furthermore, children are very wary on who asks them to do whatever. You know, if you're a parent, you ask your kid to do something, you're their parent, they're going to struggle with that. Jesus turns up. The fact that the child came when Jesus calls the child says something about Jesus. That very little bit of information says a lot about our Savior. He's the sort of man that children would come to willingly, that would trust. I love how Jesus uses a child, not himself, because Jesus, think about the question, who is the greatest? Jesus could have just been like, boom, looking at him. Can you walk on water, turn water into wine? Can you heal the dude's ear? No, it's in the future. <laughs> Can you read the future? Like, <laughs> he doesn't do that. Instead, he draws attention to his nature, not to his power. He draws attention to his nature. And he calls a child. Unless you are converted and become a little child, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. This should terrify us. Honestly, you can read a lot of things in the Bible that should conflict with your bad nature or should convict you on to do better. And some things should terrify us. This is up there. This should terrify you. Jesus himself says, unless you become, unless you convert to as, as your nature as a little child, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
This would disappoint us if it hasn't already. We're going to go through things that I think is really important for us to understand. Children back in the day that Jesus is talking about are regarded more as property than individuals. It was understood that they were to be seen and not heard. I don't know how we lost that initiative as parents. (laughs) We've made mistakes. Jesus says we've got to take this type of humility if we're to enter the kingdom of God, much less if we want to be the greatest in the kingdom. Let's go through some points here about children, especially in that time. A child was a person not of importance in Jewish society. They were subjected to the authority of the elders, not taken seriously except as a responsibility, one to be looked after, not one to be looked up to. Children are not threatening. We aren't afraid of meeting a five-year-old in a dark alley. Think about that. That tells me that if I'm to be the greatest, I am not to intimidate people into the kingdom of God. The church should never be a place of intimidation. We're not known and we shouldn't be known for a presence that makes someone feel small and insignificant. I love this one. Children are not good at deceiving. It's funny that I see so much of myself in my children now that I'm a parent. And I'm so embarrassed of some of the things I said to my own parents thinking that I was deceiving them. (laughs) Isn't it funny as a child you think you've got such a convincing story and your parents show you so much grace because they could totally tear you apart. And I look at my kids and they'll tell me something and Emma and I just look at each other and we're like, we're not just thinking, man, that's a lie. We're thinking, oh man, I've been there before. I've done that before. I've said dumb things like that before. And I thought that person has believed it. We're not good at deceiving as children. That's one of the most powerful things that I think about Jesus when he says to have a nature of a child. We shouldn't be good at deceiving. We shouldn't be good at hiding ourselves and deceiving others. Children aren't good like that. Do you know, a child is held up as an ideal, not as innocence, purity or faith in this story, but of humility and of unconcern for social status. That's what Jesus is using a child for, for humility and unconcern for social status. The reason he sets the bar so high by setting it so low is that it isn't in our nature to take the low place and humble ourselves. It's to demand and be entitled to the high places, which is so funny because I don't know about you, but as a believer, how how often I can quote the scriptures that entitle me to authority and to blessing and to favour that I'm the victorious one, and I am because of Christ. These aren't bad things. But we're so, we, we learn those ones. 
Women, we bury those in the depths of our hearts so that we can quote them in the hardest of seasons. But all of a sudden, when you start looking at humility, man, these should be the verses we know better than anything. So when you're struggling and you quote a scripture out of arrogance, maybe we should take a step back and go, you know what? I'm going to remain a child in this situation. I'm going to be faithful to the nature of Christ in this situation. Whoever humbles himself as a little child is the greatest in the kingdom of God. Greatness. I want greatness. You want greatness. God created us naturally to, ins- to, to be inspired and to try to achieve greatness. I'm not trying to remove that from us as a church. God has called us to be a great church that achieves greatness through him. What I'm trying to do is redefine what greatness is. Not that we would shift the goalpost to make it more achievable, but that we would instill in ourselves a desire for greatness that has an eternal outcome, not an earthly, restricted, decaying nature. I listen to lots of different types of music, And I like to, sometimes words people say um, in lyrics, you know, sort of just haunt me for a bit. And I was, don't judge me, I was listening to a Macklemore song uh, when I was preparing this. And he says this line, he says, you die twice. One, when you leave this earth. And once, when your name is said for the last time, when you're remembered for the last time. When no one talks about you anymore. And I thought to myself, we live consistently trying to achieve that last part, never to be forgotten, always to be the greatest. But the greatness that we see in the kingdom is not that we would be remembered, but that he would be remembered. That our greatness would be overcome by the generations to come. That our greatness would be superseded by their greatness. That we would have something of a building block mentality. That we don't serve something that would be remembered by our name, but be glorified through his name. This is what humility allows us to do, is to go, I'm going to build something that is going to be great for my time, but it's going to allow those to come to do even greater works in the name of Jesus. That's greatness. That's humility. That's what we've come for. That's what children understand that we don't understand as adults. Children don't have selfish ambition to be remembered. They're constantly chasing those in authority. They're constantly listening to those who are going to bring life. And they're so dependent. I watched Judah Finmore walk around. I was saying to Colin, man, as kids, we're completely useless. Like he's living the best life, running around. But like... Within a moment, he can bash his head on something, trip on a cable, do a front flip, land on his backside, and he's so dependent on Daniel and Rachel and hopefully the rest of us that are around to help. But I want to live that type of life with God. I want to run hard knowing that my dad's always around. It's not about me, it's about him, that the nature that I have is that I'm, I'm protected and I'm fulfilled and I'm not looking to be number one, I'm just looking to have some, some moments Children don't need to try to be humble. They are humble (laughs) by their very nature. 
Like they honestly can't do much for themselves. It's the same case with really gracious people. Not that they can't do anything for themselves, but it's their very nature. It's who they are. And this is what I think is really weird about humility, that when it is imitated, when it's not real, when it's disingenuous, it is the most sickening thing. But when it's real, when it's authentic, it is but the most attractive thing. We've got to remain humble as a church. I know this year, more than any, is a year that God is going to allow us to rise up and, get, and take back what He has given us, that the enemy has stolen from this, this city, from this community. We're going to be so, so busy this year, just plundering, pushing back the gates of Hades, beginning to take what the enemy said we could never have. In a moment, we're going to achieve what he has held on for decades. In a moment, God is going to break down. Oh, this year is going to be such a year of success for us as a church, for you individually, but we're going to need to remain humble. I want us to be, you know, no, ah, God, thank you for what you've done. No, look at us. I want us to do stuff that inspires other churches to go harder, to grow, to, get, to do better. I want us to be a church that is a catalyst for change, not just so that we would be honoured, but that God would be honoured and be glorified. But at the end of the day, if we're not humble, we're not going to inherit anything. If we're not humble, we're not going to be trusted with anything. If we're not humble, we are going to freely give away the success of our hard work and labour for the kingdom simply because we thought that it was all about us. Who's the MVP? What's the best church on the North Shore? What's the best church in Squamish? God doesn't care. It's his church. It's his bride. He wants someone who's humble. Not me first, you first. We're going to go back into worship. We've got two other points. Remain hopeful. I'll shoot through them quick. Remain hopeful is very simple. Do it. But real hope, and I'll give you this one example. True hope, not false hope. True hope looks to the future and transforms us in the present. That's what true hope is. That's what Jesus allows us to do. He allows us to look forward and with great joy into the future, but it transforms us now in the present. It's like saying, I believe I'm going to get an A in my test, so I begin to study now to achieve that mark. That's true hope. False hope is I'm going to get an A and then watch Netflix and chill. We've got to remain hopeful. We know that we serve the God of hope. Bible tells without hope, the heart will perish. Hope is entitled to vision. Hope is entitled to desires of God's outcomes in our life. This is the hope that we should have. The last one is to remain his. And as the worship team begins to prepare to lead us back into worship, I want you to know this. We are, at the end of the day, only able to achieve the first three by remaining his each and every year, each and every Sunday, each and every month of the year, we take time to reflect His Word. So why? You would remain His. Every time we send out content is to point you back to Him, to say, remain His above all else, remain His. Be found in the hands of God. Be found making sure that you're pursuing in a devoted manner. Don't treat like God like a genie, though. The Christmas play was amazing. He's not Luke Gartenbein pretending to be Wade, who's really Luke Gartenbein on the other side of a walkie-talkie. <laughs> be devoted, remain his. There's that, that, that story Jesus says that he is the vine, we are the branches, and that we can only bear fruit if we're connected to him. A grapevine, you cut the branches, you throw it in a pile, they stay green for a while, but after... 
A few weeks, like almost overnight, they turn brown, and that's how bitterness happens in a Christian. We make it look like we're still connected, and we know the lingo and the Christianese language. We say the right things, we pray the right words, put on our mask, and we smile our way through life. But then all of a sudden, reality hits, and we become these brittle, dried-out branches that the Bible says have no use but to burn. You've got to remain His. This year, our culture remain helpful, remain humble, remain hopeful, and above all else, remain His. Can we achieve that humility that I preached about today through Him, His nature of a child? That doesn't mean we're ignorant or that we're willfully careless or that we don't care. It just means we take that place of abasement over the place of personal advancement and we give God all the opportunity and time so that when we reflect on these words I'm about to say, it actually carries the integrity it should. Who you are will always be dependent upon whose you are. Are you of the world? Or are you a child of God? Let's worship. We hope you enjoyed this message. We would love you to subscribe to our weekly podcast. Other ways you can connect with Avant Life is through YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. Or check out our website at avantlifechurch.com.